Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. Last week, I had some trouble with the internet towards the end of my show. And I always hate it when that happens because I really, really rely on the internet. This time, though, I've come prepared. So I've set the web pages up for the end of the show where I talk about the movies that are coming out the next week. And by next week, I mean the week of Monday, September 20th through Friday, September 24th, 2021. But for this show, I have three brand new movies to review for you. Unfortunately, one of those movies to which I was looking forward to seeing is not actually The Eyes of Tammy Faye. That's the newest film that's come out with Jessica Chastain as the titular Tammy Faye and Andrew Garfield as the Reverend Jim Baker. I am very, very eager to see that film, but unfortunately, it did not come out in Nashville this weekend. It's coming out next weekend, though, and rest assured, I will see that movie, and like I said during every segment of what's coming up next, I will review it for you next week. And that's when I mean it. But I do have three brand new movies to review for you. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is uh, Clint Eastwood's latest as an actor, producer, and director, and the movie is Cry Macho. And as far as Clint Eastwood's directorial repertoire, he has consistently been directing film after film, year after year, and that says a lot considering he is 81 years old as of the date of this show. But this is the first movie, uh, Cry Macho is, the first movie that he's directed since Richard Jewell, and the first movie he's directed and acted in simultaneously since The Mule. And I really do have to say that Clint Eastwood has been hit or miss in terms of directorial efforts, but then again, he has won two Oscars for Best Director, one for Unforgiven in 1992, and the other for Million Dollar Baby in 2004. And several movies he's directed since Million Dollar Baby have been nominated for Best Picture, such as uh, Letters from Iwo Jima and Invictus, just to name a few. Oh, and American Sniper, too. I can't forget about that. But I would probably say, even though some people had some problems with American Sniper, and I think it was Seth Rogen who compared it to the Nazi film within the Quentin Tarantino movie Inglorious Bastards. I wouldn't go that far. I did enjoy it a lot more, apparently, than Seth Rogen did. But I also will say that Cry Macho is Clint Eastwood's best film as a director since American Sniper. But the movie is about a one-time rodeo star and washed-up horse breeder who you can imagine is played in this movie by Clint Eastwood, who takes a job to bring a man's young son home and away from his alcoholic mom in Mexico. On their journey, the horseman finds redemption through teaching the boy what it means to be a good man. Now, that is a bit of a sugar-coated description of the film, but of course it was written on IMDb. So let me be a little bit more specific as to what this film entails. So Clint Eastwood plays 
a washed up rodeo star by the name of Mike Milo, who has ended his career after a severe back injury and begins spending his time breeding and training horses. And this movie takes place circa 1979 to 1980. Why it takes place uh, that long ago, I don't exactly know, but there are some certain plot points that probably wouldn't be um, believable in this age of cell phones and the internet that probably help the plot a little bit. But he's hired by his former boss, whose name is Howard, who's played in this movie by Dwight Yoakam, to travel to Mexico and retrieve his son, Rafael Polk, also known as Rafo, who's played by a relative newcomer by the name of Eduardo Minet, who is living with his mother, Leda, who I mentioned previously is an alcoholic, and she's played by a lovely actress by the name of Fernanda Uriola. Let me say that again. Fernanda Uriola. And he um, has been flirting with a life of crime. Uh, Rafo has. And he's also been participating in cockfights with a rooster who is his pet by the name of Macho. So Clint Eastwood, or his character Mike, gets Rafo out of Mexico and is attempting to get him into the Texas border where he can trade Rafo off with Dwight Yoakam's character, Howard, who is Rafo's father. And in the meantime, they actually, because of car troubles, they get stuck in a small town. And <clears throat> both Mike and Rafo begin to develop, befriend a, a relatively older um, bar patron by the name of Marta, who's played by Natalia Traven, and you learn a little bit later that she doesn't go by Senora, she goes by Senorita, which for those Spanish-speaking people, uh, or those people who don't speak Spanish, I should say, means that, well, Senora means a woman who's married, Senorita means one who is not married. So that, of course, opens up <laughs> a window of opportunity for um, an aging cowboy who otherwise has not very much for which to live. So I was expecting, based on Clint Eastwood's uh, recent directorial repertoire, that I wouldn't like this movie. Because, I mean, his previous films recently, like Richard Jewell and The Mule, have been okay. They've certainly had moments in terms of their storytelling that's been problematic, but I do have to give it to Clint Eastwood for staying with both directing and acting well into his um, senior years. And that really says something because even 25 years ago, people thought of Clint Eastwood as an old man, not, not unreasonably. But I think this is probably his first feel-good film in quite some time, arguably since he directed the less-than-stellar musical uh, Jersey Boys, which was lacking in certain areas um, in, in terms of storytelling. But 
This is a little bit closer to a feel-good film than Clint Eastwood has directed in a while, and there actually really is nothing wrong with that. And I actually think that Clint Eastwood does well playing somebody who's um, old and grisly, not to mention somebody who other people underestimate because of their age as well as their injuries. But that may be actually (laughs) symbolic of Clint Eastwood now. And I made a an error a little while ago when I said that Clint Eastwood is 81. He's 91. I did the math wrong on that, and I apologize. But that's even all the more impressive that he's still directing big-budget films that get nationwide releases well into his 90s. And I said this a lot about Christopher Plummer um, as he was making movie after movie. On this show, Words on Film, I kept saying for each and every movie in in which I've seen Christopher Plummer acting, he may die tomorrow, and hopefully he doesn't. But if he does, he at least has this movie um, to cement his acting legacy. And the thing is, I said that about Christopher Plummer movie after movie after movie, because very much like Clint Eastwood, Christopher Plummer probably did some of his best work in his Uh, older years than he did in his younger years, arguably. But I wouldn't go as far as to say that this is Clint Eastwood's best role ever, but it is probably his best acting role since his role in Million Dollar Baby, and that is saying a lot. And he's somebody for whom I found myself uh, rooting, not to mention that he has a lot of uh, really good chemistry with the young 13-year-old boy, Raffo, who he's trying to get to his estranged father on the border between Texas and Mexico. And while I did know the basic plot of this film, I was also worried about this film being potentially xenophobic, particularly because There was a recent movie starring Sylvester Stallone, which was slated to be the last Rambo movie, which it probably will be. It was called Rambo Last Blood. The plot of that movie was, or rather Rambo, going down to Mexico to rescue his estranged daughter. And that film was full of a lot of xenophobia. And I was afraid that Cry Macho would be exactly the same that you would be inundated with Mexican stereotypes. And fortunately, it wasn't like that, Uh, or at least not to me. Now, if I was Mexican or knew people who were of Mexican descent, they might be able to tell me or I might know what would be accurate in this film and what wouldn't be and what would be cardboard stereotypes and what wouldn't be. But it didn't seem to me that there were many hurtful stereotypes in this film. I really got behind it. I thought the characters were very rich, particularly um, the the character of Mike, Clint Eastwood's character, as well as the character of the 13-year-old boy, Raffo, who is Eduardo Minet's character. But I also really liked the supporting performance in this film by uh, Fernando Urejola, as well as Natalia Travain. I thought they acted really well. I got behind their characters, whether they were good or bad, and I enjoyed Cry Macho. I thought it was a good road movie, 
and also one about family that you wouldn't expect would be about family. So Cry Macho, to Clint Eastwood's credit, is not as stereotypical or as xenophobic as Sylvester Stallone's Rambo Last Blood, and I am thankful for that. And it was also made, I think, unlike Clint Eastwood's previous films like The Mule and Richard Jewell with more of an open mind. So I give Clint Eastwood a lot of credit for directing and producing this film, which is based on a book by by the same name, Cry Macho, which was written by N. Richard Nash. And it was also produced by legendary uh, producer Albert S. Ruddy, who has been producing films since the mid-60s. He famously produced The Godfather, The Longest Yard, uh, Cannonball Run, Cannonball Run 2, and several others, and he's still producing for that matter. But Cry Macho, to me, was a pleasant surprise, and it gets my rating of... Oh, excuse me. I will leave you in suspense as I tell you what I'm going to give the rating of. It's a knockout. I think it's very well acted. The road trip um, film has been, I I think, done before several times, but I really liked Clint Eastwood's performance in this film as well as the supporting performances by the likes of Dwight Yoakam, Eduardo Minet, uh, Fernanda Yorijola, as well as uh, Natalia Travain. And I just thought it was a tremendous improvement amongst several of Clint Eastwood's directorial efforts over the last couple of years. So I think it's well worth watching. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Nightbooks. This is a Netflix original that premiered on the platform on September 15th. It is directed by David Yaroveski and produced, at least partly, by Sam Raimi. And David Yaroveski has directed a few other movies. One movie he directed... Uh, came out in 2019 and it didn't do especially well, but I thought it actually was a very good anti-hero movie. And it's a movie that's called Brightburn. Brightburn is a movie that I did actually review on my show two years ago. And I was very impressed by it. Uh, In short, Brightburn describes a, a hypothetical scenario where what if given certain circumstances, Superman became evil. <laughs> and while it's not explicitly about Superman, the the alien in the film who looks like a, a human being is brought up in, in very similar circumstances to uh, Superman. But it, I would highly recommend Brightburn. That was David Yaroveski's feature film directorial debut. So this is his sophomore effort. 
uh, Nightbooks is, and it is based on a book of the same name by J.A. White. And I have not read the book, and it's one of those things where I just saw it on my Netflix feed, so I watched it. But the movie follows Alex, who is a boy obsessed with scary stories and horror stories, who is imprisoned by an evil young witch in her contemporary New York City apartment. So the boy in this film is named Alex, as I said, and he's played by Winslow Fegley. And this story, I think in terms of structure, reminded me very much of Maurice Syndak's Where the Wild Things Are. You're introduced to a boy who is having a bit of a temper tantrum. You don't know exactly why, and that's good that you don't know why, but he's about to do something very rash until this young witch, whose name is Natasha and is played by Kristen Ritter, basically kidnaps him um, under the condition that she te- uh, he tell her a compelling, scary story. <laughs> And it's the movie is rated uh, TVPG, but because it involves horror, it has some scary images. And there were images in this film that actually made me jump, including some scenes where Kristen Ritter just goes bad. And I I won't describe exactly what happens, but eventually Alex befriends another young woman by the name or who who is also kidnapped by the evil young witch Natasha whose name is Yasmin and she's played by Lydia Jewett and I thought that Winslow Fegley and Lydia Jewett um interacted very well alongside each other throughout the film there aren't many other actors in this film cuz it largely focuses around Alex Yasmin and Natasha But by no means is it boring. As a matter of fact, when this kid Alex is trapped into this young witch's apartment, I was, A, really scared for him, and B, I wanted him to get out of there. As a matter of fact, I sometimes thought that if I were in this situation, regardless of what age I uh, would be, I would immediately want to get out of this apartment, plus... I would be scared to death of some of the things that I saw in this film. Like, for instance, there's this one Siamese cat, only one Siamese cat, by the way, not two, who um, has some certain scary faces that it makes that might actually scare some viewers. Now, the movie is rated TVPG. If it were released in theaters, I think it would probably be rated PG-13. Not for language or sexual situations and nor should there be any sexual situations with a movie with two 13 year olds just saying but I think it would be primarily TV uh, rather PG-13 for scary imagery and also the fact that the boy in this film is obsessed with scary stories and not the tame scary stories that you usually find in children's literature so I haven't read Nightbooks, the the book which J.A. White wrote, and if I do, my perception of the characters in the book as I'm reading it, assuming that the book has no pictures, might be skewed by the images I've seen 
in this movie, but I still want to read it. I, I want to read it so badly because it is night night books is a really, really good story. And it reminds me, as I said about stories written by the likes of Maury Sinback, uh, Maury Sindak, excuse me, uh, Neil Gaiman, as well as Ayo Miyazaki. And as a matter of fact, I could see this movie being animated by somebody at Studio Ghibli, not necessarily Ayo Miyazaki himself, because I believe he's retired from directing, but it definitely has some Miyazaki qualities to it, especially when compared to a movie like Spirited Away. But that doesn't take away from the film itself. It definitely had a hold on me as I was watching it. I thought that Kristen Ritter did a great job playing someone who was scary at times, but also really funny at other times. And I think it's actually good for kids to watch because not only is it visually stimulating, although sometimes scary at times, but it also pays a lot of tribute and emphasizes the quality and the the art of storytelling. And yes, it does focus on horror as a topic, but there's nothing wrong with that. So a lot of good acting, a really good story. The only reason that I was disappointed to see that it was based on a book written, as I said, by J.A. White is not because, not just because I wanted to read the book first, which I try to do and not, I don't always succeed in doing uh, before watching a film based on a book, but also because the story here felt, of course, based on stories by Maurice Sindak, uh, Neil Gaiman, and other um, notable uh, fantasy and horror authors over the last few decades, but also because it felt original. And and granted, I... I I will say it it took some inspiration, or at least I think it would probably take some inspiration from some of those other stories by other authors, but there is nothing wrong with being inspired. I think everybody is. But the point is that Nightbooks was a very pleasant surprise, and for that reason, it gets my rating of a knockout. I think it's very well acted, it's very uh, visually stimulating, and I think that there are other directors who could have taken the macabre elements of this film and made it equally as compelling. Tim Burton comes particularly to mind, as does Barry Sonnenfeld and a, and a few others, maybe even Henry Selleck. But I still enjoyed the picture immensely, and I think that the director, David Yaravesky, is a director to watch. And I do have to further emphasize that if you missed his film Brightburn, See that any way you can. Either see it um, on streaming, or if you can get a copy of the DVD, see that because it is a really good film. And Nightbooks is a direct, uh, is a really good follow up to Brightburn.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Schumacher. It is a documentary, particularly about the seven-time Formula One champion, Michael Schumacher. And if you like car racing, not just Formula One, but also NASCAR, you will enjoy this film immensely. However, unlike the person who does their show after me, Will Reynolds, who does a show called NASCAR This Week, I'm not a racing fan. Of course, if I went to a racing track and I saw cars you know, racing, I would probably be into it and I would, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. But I could care, I couldn't care less whether Jeff Gordon or whomever wins. And I don't even know if Jeff Gordon is still racing or not. My point is, I'm not a racing fan, so that may be part of the reason why I wasn't really into this movie. But through exclusive interviews and archival footage, this documentary traces an intimate portrait of Michael Schumacher. For those of you who are not familiar with Formula One racing. Jordan Schumacher is a German former race driver who competed in Formula One for such companies as Jordan, Benetton, Ferrari, and Mercedes. And Schumacher has a joint record seven World Drivers Championship titles with Lewis Hamilton, And at the time of his retirement from the sport in 2012, he held the records for the most wins, pole positions, and podium finishes. He had 91 wins, 68 pole positions, and 155 podium finishes. So I don't know very much about racing, either NASCAR or Formula One or whatever other races are there, but I can already tell those are very impressive numbers right there. If that's not enough for you, he also maintains the record for the most fastest laps, 77, and the most races won in a single season, which he shares with Sebastian Vettel, which is 13, and those are not even all of his records. So, I have to go into every movie with an open mind, even the ones which I'm excited about seeing. The ones I'm not so excited about seeing, I still have to go in with an open mind. And it's not that I don't get a rush from watching racing. It's just I would never watch NASCAR or Formula One racing, for example, on TV, for instance. I would be bored to tears. But again, if you were to bring me to a race and have me watch it live... It's just something about seeing something live. It's a lot more gratifying than seeing it on TV. But beyond that, I'm not invested in who wins or who loses. But to the documentary Schumacher's credit, I did get into racing a little bit more, not to mention um, Michael Schumacher's wins and some of his uh, defeats, which despite his records, still feels really agonizing. And I can relate to the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, certainly. What I did like about this documentary is that it detailed Michael Schumacher's upbringing um, where his father actually owned a go-kart track. And he got into racing through his father. He started out actually go-kart racing and then eventually 
worked his way up to Formula One. That's not what I liked about it. What I liked about it was the fact that Michael Schumacher actually described, because he's one of the interviewees in this uh, documentary, he described actually not spending a lot on his go-karts and using materials that he picked out of the trash to add to his go-kart. And he won races based on things for which he spent little or nothing. I really like to hear that. I, I love how somebody is not stopping themselves from doing something they love because they don't have the money for it. They just use the resources they have and they go right to the top. I, I've, I, I think that's kind of an American dream sort of story, but it's also, I mean, it's not just American because Michael Schumacher, as far as I know, never went to America, although I think he'd fit right in if he were to race in NASCAR. Of course, he's retired now, but you know what I'm saying. But I I do think that that was probably one of the more inspiring things to see. And regardless of whether or not you are a fan of Formula One or racing in general, that's going to inspire some people who watch this film. The film, by the way, is directed by Hans Bruno Kammertons, Vanessa Nocker, and... Michael Wesch, um, all three of whom are German. And one thing that might turn American audiences off from this film is there are not a lot of people in this film who speak English. And you have to read the subtitles at the bottom of the screen a lot if you're not fluent in German. I don't have a problem with reading subtitles, but again, there were some things to take away from this film uh, or this documentary. And it did what a great documentary usually does, which is tells me something I don't know. But I did think that it, I think it missed the mark in my opinion of being a great documentary because it, it started, it, it started in a standard way. It started as childhood and worked his way up to his adulthood, up to the point where he retires and I thought that felt a little too standard. In addition to the fact that I will fully acknowledge that I'm not a racing fan and I'm not invested in the people who drive these vehicles. I am not saying that driving these vehicles is not hard work. I'm, I was actually very astonished by the conditions these drivers go through. It's not just a matter of stepping on the gas and trying to get into first place. There is actually a lot of physical effort into it that people who are watching the race who are not familiar with what goes on inside the car might be surprised to hear. But Schumacher gets my rating of a checkout because I do think it is a standard biographical documentary. Now, somebody who is into Formula One racing or car racing in general might think this is the greatest documentary ever. And I do acknowledge that I have that bias of not being into car racing. But I also acknowledge that this is a decent documentary about a very extraordinary racer who certainly made his mark on the world by doing something he loves. And Michael Schumacher will have my undying respect for not only doing something he loves, but exceeding in something that he loves, not just succeeding, exceeding as well. 
And I think for that reason, I enjoyed Schumacher to a certain extent, but it felt a little standard as far as biographical documentaries go. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my next segment, which is What's Coming Out Next? This is a spoken word preview of movies that are slated to be released in theaters and sometimes on streaming for the week of September 20th through September 24th, 2021. And as I said previously, The Eyes of Tammy Faye is playing in theaters, but it's not playing in theaters around here, at least not yet, here in Nashville where I am recording this show. But I will make it a point to see The Eyes of Tammy Faye next week, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. The biggest movie that's going to be released in theaters nationwide next week is Dear Evan Hansen. This is a film adaptation of the Tony and Grammy award-winning musical about Evan Hansen, a high school senior with social anxiety disorder, and his journey of self-discovery and acceptance following the suicide of a fellow classmate. Now, Dear Evan Hansen, a couple of years ago, and probably even still today on Broadway, was one of the most talked about Broadway musicals in uh, on Broadway. And... <laughs> That, that was kind of redundant. But the film adaptation was probably inevitable, but it also carries some risks. But I'm going to see it with an open mind, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. It's directed by Stephen Chabowski and stars Ben Platt, uh, Julianne Moore, Caitlin Dever, and Amy Adams. Now, I have not seen Dear Evan Hansen, but I know I've, I've read some articles about it. I've heard some songs from the musical, but that's really all I know. I know the basic plot, and that's about it. So when I review this film for you next week, I am not going to be one of these people who compares it favorably or unfavorably to the Broadway musical, because I haven't seen the Broadway musical. But I will approach it with an open mind, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that's subject to be released in theaters is one that's called I'm Your Man. I'm Your Man is a comedy romance sci-fi film. In order to obtain research funds for her studies, a scientist accepts an offer to participate in an extraordinary experiment. For three weeks, she is to live with a humanoid robot created to make her happy. This sounds interesting. It is directed by Maria Schrader and stars Maren Eggert, Dan Stevens, Sandra Huller, 
and Hans Lowe. From the sound of it, it might sound like a foreign film because I'm not particularly familiar with those actors, but I will see it and I'll let you know what I think, or if, if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. I can't guarantee that I will see it, but I'll look out for it. Another movie that's subject to be, blah, subject to be released in theaters is one that's called On These Grounds. This is a documentary, and it is... It involves a viral video that shows a white policeman throwing a black teenager from her school desk. One woman helps the girl, faces the officer, and dismantles the system. Now, this is a documentary. So, I am not familiar with this viral video. I know that, sadly, there are viral videos a lot like this. This sounds like a fascinating documentary. It's debuted at a few film festivals. If I get the chance to see it, I will review it for you on next week's show, but I cannot guarantee that I'm actually going to see it. But there's there's one film that is subject to be released in theaters on September 24th, and that film is Apache Junction. It is an Old West, well, rather, in the movie, Apache Junction is an Old West outpost of lawlessness, a haven for thieves and cold-blooded killers. When big city reporter Annabelle Angel arrives in town and becomes a target, notorious gunslinger Jericho Ford comes to her aid. Now Annabelle must entrust her future to a man with a deadly past as Jericho heads towards a tense showdown. So obviously this is a Western, It stars Thomas Jane, who's a very good actor, Scout Taylor Compton, Stuart Townsend, and Victoria Pratt. And it's directed by Justin Lee. And obviously I'm familiar with Thomas Jane. Justin Lee, on the other hand, has directed a number of action and some Western films over the last couple of years. Um, None that I've actually seen. But I will, if I get the chance to see this film, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. So now that I've reviewed all the films that are subject to be released in theaters on September um, 24th, let me get into the movies that are going to be released on streaming for the week of September 20th to September 24th, 2021. Starting with Netflix, of course. On Monday, this isn't a Netflix original, but the movie Grown Ups, which is the Adam Sandler film, will be released for streaming on Netflix. This is probably not the first time that Grown Ups is on Netflix, especially since Adam Sandler has a current deal with Netflix. And the movies he's released on Netflix, one of them was pretty good. All the rest were largely laughless. And Grown Ups is a film where it just seems like Adam Sandler and his famous friends got together and just cackled at themselves. It's not a great comedy, but I'm at least glad that I saw it so I can tell you that it just wasn't that great. But anyway, that's what's premiering on Netflix on Monday, September 20th. On Wednesday, September 22nd, there's actually a film that's coming out called Infect... Excuse me. I almost said Infections. It's Confessions of an Invisible Girl. I am very curious to see 
what this one is about. Uh, I don't know if the the girl in the title is actually <laughs> invisible, as in literally, or if it's one of those high school uh, movies where she is figuratively invisible, and I can relate to that. I can tell you that this film is actually not an American film. It's an Italian film. The man who directed it is named uh, Bruce Garotti, and it is about the clever but socially awkward Tete joining a new school. She'll do anything to fit in, but the queen bee among her classmates has other ideas. The movie doesn't star anybody I know particularly. Actually, there's there's nobody I know in this film, but I think probably Americans might enjoy this film. I don't know if I'm going to see it for myself, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that is going to be premiering on Netflix is one that's called Intrusion, and that is also on uh, September 22nd. And it's a movie that appears to be an American film. It stars Logan Marshall Green, Frida Pinto, and Robert John Burke. So this is definitely an American film. It's about a woman, uh, Frida Pinta, who moves to a small town with her husband, but is rattled when she is targeted for a home invasion. So Frida Pinto's husband in this movie is Logan Marshall Green. Why she is targeted for home invasion, I don't know. Could it be because of the interracial marriage? It could be, but I don't know for sure. But it's a movie I will try to check out, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. So that's it for Netflix Films for Wednesday, September 22nd. There is one film that's coming out on Thursday, September 23rd that is a Netflix original. It's called Jesus Carl. Um, or Yesu Carl, I, I assume that's French. So I can't tell you too much about that, but that's all I know. The title of, of this film that's coming out on Friday, September 24th, there are several premiere, um, the series that are going to be premiering. There's one docuseries, and I'm not sure if this is a limited docuseries or not. If it is a limited docuseries, I'll review it on the show. If it isn't, I'll skip it, but it's called Jailbirds New Orleans. And this obviously takes place in a New Orleans prison, or maybe it's a jail as opposed to a prison. But there are a lot of shows about life in jail or life in prison on Netflix. I believe this one takes place in a women's uh, jail. But I don't know for sure. What I can tell you is that there is one film that is going to be premiering on Netflix on Friday, September 24th. And that movie is called The Starling. And The Starling is a movie that stars Melissa McCarthy and Timothy Oliphant. And it is about a woman by the name of Lily, who's played by Melissa McCarthy, who suffers a loss, and a combative starling takes nest beside her quiet home, a starling being a bird. And the feisty bird taunts and attacks the grief-stricken lily. On her journey to expel the starling, she rediscovers her will to live and capacity for love. And this movie, as far as 
uh, genres go, it sounds a bit like a drama, but it also sounds like it has some comedic elements in it as well. And Chris O'Dowd, who also co-starred in Bridesmaids with Melissa McCarthy, plays Melissa McCarthy's husband, uh, Jack Maynard. And the movie also stars uh, Skylar Gazondo, Kevin Kline, Loretta Devine, David Diggs, and a few other particularly well-known actors. So The Starling is a movie that I guarantee you I will see. And hopefully it's better than the comedy that Melissa McCarthy did with Octavia Spencer that was directed by Melissa McCarthy's husband, Ben Falcone, the one where she's a superhero. That one was a bit of a letdown. And it seems like the Melissa McCarthy movies that are directed by her husband let me down in one way or another. Um, I mean, there, there have been some good ones. I particularly like The Boss, for example, but the other ones she did with Ben Falcone, eh, not so great. And I like both of them. So it's, it's really a shame that it's just kind of missing the mark. Uh, but I will give the Starling a chance, particularly because Ben Falcone has nothing to do with it. Sorry, Ben. And I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. So that's it for the Netflix films that will be premiering on, um, uh, on Netflix next week. Again, redundant sentence, but what can I do when I'm saying this stuff off the top of my head? On Amazon Prime, there are no uh, feature films that are going to be debuting. Actually, there are no Amazon original films that will be premiering on the platform this month. There, there were actually two films that premiered on Friday, September 17th that I did not get to see. One was called Everybody's Talking About Jamie, and the other one was called The Mad Women's Ball. I will try to see those films, and I'll let you know what I think on ne- next week's show if I do, in fact, see them. On Apple TV, there is a series that's called The Foundation, but there is no uh, movie that's going to be premiering on Apple Plus TV for the remainder of the month. Even if there was, I couldn't see those for you because I don't get Apple TV. I hear there are some really good shows and some good movies on there. Like, for instance, I hear a lot about The Morning Show, which stars Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, and Steve Carell. I hear that's a really good show, but I wouldn't review it on the show even if I liked it because this is a show that is dedicated to movies, not TV shows. And I think I've explained in length why, excuse me, I don't uh, review TV shows on this show, Words on Film, but I won't get into that right now. On Disney Plus, there is one documentary that's a Disney Plus original that will be premiering on Friday, September 24th, and the movie is called A Spark Story. I will tell you what that documentary is about momentarily. And it looks like I got the description and it's, it follows actually, this is really interesting. Um, the it's, it's follows the Pixar's spark shorts filmmaking process, specifically on the process of Corbin and Gonzalez offering an intimate look as they bring their personal visions to the screen. So I got to commend Pixar for really hanging in there with the animated shorts when 
A lot of the other animated studios, including Disney at large, have given up on animated shorts. I think it's really too bad that they have. And I, I do look forward to seeing the animated shorts before the feature-length Pixar films. I didn't know that they were called spark shorts, but whatever they want to call them, they still tell really good stories in about five minutes. And there are even some great um, Pixar short films that were not nominated for a best animated short film. There was one called Lava, which premiered in 2015, and it was about a singing volcano. I thought that one was beautifully animated, not to mention the song that's sung throughout Lava is catch, excuse me, is catchy as hell. Um, but I will look out for a spark story and I will let you know what I think if I do in fact see it on next week's show. I really got to write down the number of interesting movies that are going to be premiering on uh, these streaming platforms. So I would be able to really get a good sense of what the movie's about. So there aren't many films. In fact, there are none that are um, HBO Max originals that will be premiering on the platform next week, not even movies that are also, like Cry Macho, simultaneously going to be released in theaters. There are a number of specials and seasons of TV shows that are going to be premiering on HBO Max. The only movie that's going to be premiering is actually premiering on Saturday, September 18th, and it's called The People vs. the Clan, which I don't know if it's a documentary yet, but I will look it up for you right now. It sounds like a documentary. Oh, it's actually a TV miniseries. And it is about a mother who successfully sues the KKK after they killed her son. Okay, this document, this docuseries just came out. I am hooked on it already. I'd love to see it. Will I review it for you on the show? Maybe. It is a miniseries, which means it's a limited docuseries. But I am, yeah, it, it sounds really good. Um... So maybe I'll review it for you on next week's show, especially considering that it premiered on a day where I am not, <laughs> where I don't watch what's coming out um, on this day, <laughs> if that makes sense to you. On Hulu, let's see what is premiering. It looks like there are no originals, uh, original movies, that is, that are going to be premiering on Hulu for the week of September 20th through September 24th. There are a couple of movies that are going to be appearing on the platform. Grown Ups is premiering on Hulu as well as Netflix. I didn't realize that uh, a movie could do that, but I suppose anything's possible. There's a movie that will be appearing on Hulu, but it's not a Hulu original. And the movie is called Funhouse. And I will look up what that movie is about right now. As it appears, it doesn't look like the the movie was made in 2021. But I am not finding a film that's any further than 2019 with that title. 
And it, and funhouse is all one word. It's not two words. I can't tell you what, what this film is about. Cause I, I don't have any information on it, but I can tell you it will be premiering on Thursday, September 23rd on Hulu. On Friday, September 24th, the movie An American Haunting, which I have not seen and which came out in 2006, 15 years ago, if you can believe it, will be appearing on Hulu on Friday, September 24th. So that's all I can tell you about Hulu for now. And I could get into what movies are going to be leaving these streaming services at the end of the month, but that would take me forever. And I would go on a tangent about movies that I love as well as movies that I hate. So I can tell you on Paramount Plus, there are no Paramount Plus originals that will be premiering on the platform. There was, oh, actually, there hasn't been a Paramount Plus original film that is that premiered on the platform since uh, Kate Musgrave's Starcrossed, which is a documentary, which I have not seen. Uh, but I might see that and let you know what I think on next week's show. But An American Haunting will also be appearing on Paramount+. Plus. And let me see if there's anything on Peacock. Peacock is partly or is free if you're willing to watch the commercials that go along with it. But to be honest with you, I haven't seen any shows on Peacock. I've seen snippets of shows like the Rich Eisen show or the Amber Ruffin show on YouTube as I'm watching that, but I haven't actually tuned into Peacock to see what's going on uh, in terms of TV shows or in terms of movies. And it looks like a lot of what's premiering on Peacock is uh, shows. When, When they say season two premiere or something like that, that's usually where I know that it's not going to be a film or it's not going to be a film. It's going to be a TV show. There is one um, program, let me put it that way, that will be appearing on uh, Peacock, which is the NBC streaming service, which I forgot to mention. Um, But I don't know if it's a movie or a TV show. It's called uh, the uh, The Toolbox Killer. And let me see if I can find any information on that. I cannot. It it doesn't look like there is any information on that, so I'll leave that be. So those are all the movies that will be streaming or premiering for streaming on the week of Monday, September 20th through Friday, September 24th, 2021. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.